amateurism as reflected in the NCAA's rules and recognized in O'Bannon prohibits athletic, athletics-related compensation beyond covering legitimate expenses or modestly recognizing achievement. So the correct injunction, we believe, is let competition decide this. We trust competitors to make the right decision. And if we're not going to do that, Congress has to decide to create an exception to not have competition decide that, not the courts. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a reminder that all of the information relating to this podcast, the episodes themselves, the descriptions, show notes, and resources that I identify on an episode-by-episode basis are contained in my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I've also been writing in a blog for over two years now, and there's some good stuff there if you want to check it out. And that can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. In this episode, we're going to start talking a little bit about the antitrust lawsuits with a view towards focusing on the Austin versus NCAA suit, which is currently pending in the United States Supreme Court. I've discussed this case in a number of prior episodes, including the first one, because this is an important element of the perfect storm that we discussed and this movement by the NCAA and the Power Five conferences to eliminate external regulatory threats to their business model. And this goes back to 2006, and a wave of antitrust suits filed by athletes, and then followed by the state laws regarding name, image, and likeness, and then some uh, additional threats that have presented themselves through this perfect storm. But this Austin case is really important because this is the case that the NCAA and Power Five are using to try to eliminate federal courts as external regulators. So we're going to talk a little bit at the 30,000 foot level about what antitrust law is, how it's relevant to college athletics, how effective it has been as an external regulator in uh, college athletics, and as essentially a competing regulator to the NCAA's uh, regulatory authority. And then we're going to talk about some of the basic legal issues that have been framed for this Austin suit. And then that's going to be a springboard into a couple of uh, other episodes on the really the details of this Austin suit and the positions that the NCAA has taken, how it's managed that suit, not just uh, within the four corners of the suit, but in tandem with their congressional campaign, their campaign, campaign in the Senate, because they're asking for the exact same thing in both of those forums, and they have not been shooting straight about that. So uh, antitrust law is uh, its complicated. There's no question about it. But I think there's a way to talk about it in a, in a simplified way. And uh, I'm going to err perhaps on the side of oversimplification. So for those antitrust lawyers out there in the listening audience, uh, give me a break here. And, you know, uh, hopefully at some point, down the road when I get to an interview format in this podcast, I'll get some uh, antitrust legal experts on and we can talk about
how kind of how to frame these issues with perfect precision. But for right now, I'm doing rough justice. And uh, as I mentioned in my first episode, I'm an attorney, and I was a litigation attorney for. Uh, about 15 years, and but I wasn't an antitrust lawyer. It's a highly specialized area of the law, and if you're going to uh, do it, you know you need to be all in uh, because it, it is a very complicated area of the law. But I have spent a lot of time in the electronic vaults in both this O'Bannon suit and in Austin, and so I think I have a good sense of kind of the, the basic elements of antitrust law and how the NCAA and Power Five have been using uh, some of the principles in antitrust law to argue for what is essentially complete immunity from liability under antitrust laws. And they are explicitly asking for that in their congressional campaign. In fact, uh, through the working group, this NCAA Board of Governors working group that was supposed to be looking at, you know, state and federal legislation that was a threat to NCAA regulatory authority. And then it kind of transitioned into this wor- working group that was ostensibly uh, in favor of nil compensation for athletes. And they were just looking for a way to get it done in a framework that uh, met all the check marks that they identified. And all of those check marks ran through amateurism and the quote unquote collegiate model, which meant that there couldn't be any meaningful nil compensation. And, and this whole nil compensation effort in the Senate and then the NCAA's voluntary rules making, which they pulled the plug on in January is really a, a ruse. All of that was designed just to lead the public and Congress and to a lesser extent federal courts into thinking that they were serious about bringing their business model into the 21st century. But that hasn't happened and it's not going to happen if the NCAA and Power Five get what they want from the U.S. Supreme Court in Austin. All right, so let's start real quickly with a primer on antitrust law. What, what is antitrust law. And the word antitrust is a little confusing because it doesn't capture at an intuitive level what antitrust law is designed to do. And at its most basic level, it is free competition law. And it is designed to eliminate any restraints on trade, any restraints in the market that would interfere with free market competition and free market opportunities. And I would say it incorporates a philosophical standpoint of economic liberty. And it is based on American values of egalitarianism, equality of opportunity, that you can take your talents in this country and the market will bring whatever those talents are worth. And, And that is quintessentially American. And it is that opportunity that the NCAA and Power Five have tried to eliminate for revenue producing athletes through their amateurism based compensation limits. And now they want to lock that inequity in by not being accountable under federal antitrust laws, which are designed to prevent the very thing that the NCAA is doing. And we're going to talk about that in the context of five important cases. I've kind of narrowed this down to five important cases that I think illustrate 
all of these these broad points and the position that the NCAA has taken and how it fits into its larger strategy to control the iron throne of college sports regulation. So I think when most lay people think about antitrust laws, and I'm just going to refer to them as free competition laws or economic opportunity laws or economic liberty laws, and I may use those interchangeably. So um, when I say that, I'm talking about laws on the books in the United States of America designed to allow Americans to exercise their economic liberties that are inherent in every aspect of our foundational principles. And when we think about antitrust laws or free competition laws, the things that typically come to mind are monopolies where one company completely overwhelms the market and buys up competitors. And, you know, you see that happening in so many sectors. It's happening in big tech now. And there's a big discussion in Congress about uh, antitrust, the antitrust implications of the, the big players kind of eating up all the small players and acquiring a larger and larger market share. And that's a legitimate concern because we don't want monopolies. We want competition. We, we want uh, to remove any barriers to entrance into markets. And then there are also cartels like uh, OPEC is a good example of a cartel where groups of powerful actors get together to essentially set the limits on competition in a way that advances their interests. And I will just say at the, at the beginning of this discussion that the NCAA has been recognized both in uh, antitrust litigation by the United States Supreme Court in this Board of Regents decision that we're going to talk a lot about, and by academic observers as a classic monopoly and a classic cartel. In fact, in some textbooks on antitrust law, the authors use the NCAA as a perfect example of a monopoly and a cartel, and that's because all of these member institutions have gotten together, and this is, and we're going to really focus on the Power Five, and we're going to focus on you know the big time revenue producing interests. But those interests have gotten together and intentionally set a price on the cost of labor for the talent that provides the value in the product. And those are the revenue producing athletes, and they have conspired to cap that cost of labor at the value of an athletic scholarship. And in any other context, you take this outside of all of these justifications that are amateurism-based and all this Norman Rockwell chariots of fire BS, you put that into any other context, and it is a slam dunk violation of antitrust laws. And in addition to that, the NCAA has a corner on the market of big time college sports. And that's really the power five. So the NCAA and power five working together, as we've talked about in other episodes, have cornered the market on big time college sports and federal courts have recognized that. So even though theoretically there are other participants in the marketplace, there's the NAIA, there's the NJCAA and some other uh, college athletics products. And then there are also some, uh, you know, semi-pro uh, products that could theoretically be market competitors for this big time college sports marketplace. They're not really practical options for these athletes. And with some of the rules that require that 
in order to be eligible for a professional draft, like in football, you have to be, uh, play college sports for three years. In basketball, you have to do it for one year with this one and done rule. So all roads kind of funnel this talent pool through the NCAA, and they are they have monopolized the market of big time college sports. And one of the fundamental precepts of antitrust laws, free competition laws, is that they only apply to commercial activity. So there are certain areas of collusive or cooperative behavior among people who have a similar interest in a particular endeavor that don't rise to the level of antitrust violations because they don't really relate to, to commerce and to commercial activity. And antitrust law is concerned with markets, and uh, markets are part of commerce. And in order for uh, there to be antitrust liability, there has to be commercial activity. And early on in antitrust litigation in the NCAA context, and this takes us back to Board of Regents in this 1984 Supreme Court decision, the NCAA was essentially saying, look, we're, we're not a commercial actor here. We are an educational nonprofit, and we're really operating outside of the scope of antitrust laws. And the, the Supreme Court, in the context of Board of Regents, said, uh, we don't think so. And remember, uh, the Board of Regents case involved a contract, the exclusive contract that the NCAA had with uh, CBS and ABC to televise college football. And the NCAA had the exclusive right to do that from 1980, I'm sorry, 1951 to 1981. So that was obviously a commercial transaction. And the court was looking at the nature of the transaction, not necessarily how the NCAA characterized itself as an institution. And that's a really important distinction because in these antitrust cases, the, the courts do a case-by-case analysis in the specific market context and the specific conduct and all of the surrounding totality of the, of the circumstances to determine you know, whether antitrust laws apply, if they apply, whether there's been an anti-competitive competitive market behavior, if that's the case, whether there are any justifications that the market actor can use to defend its anti-competitive market practices, and then assuming that, uh, that there is a market violation and some remedy is in order, what that remedy ought to look like. And in that Board of Regents decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said, yes, antitrust laws apply. This is clearly commercial activity. But beyond that, they held that the NCAA acted as a classic monopoly, a classic cartel, and that this exclusive contract right for televised football was essentially as clear an antitrust violation as you can imagine. And, you know, there there are two ways to approach antitrust analyses. And one is uh, called the per se approach to antitrust liability. And that occurs where a court looks at a particular market practice. And if it is so anti-competitive on its face, that there cannot be an intelligent justification for that market practice. They use what's called a per se 
antitrust analysis where they just say this on its face categorically is a slam dunk violation of antitrust laws and then you go straight to the remedy. In cases where there may be some justification for the anti-competitive uh, practice, courts use a what's called a rule of reason analysis, which is this totality of the circumstances analysis. And it's fact-driven, it's context-driven. And one of the important things to understand about the regulation of college sports and the NCAA as a regulatory authority is it because of the nature of the product and the cooperation that's necessary among all of the constituent parts. So we have 1,100 NCAA schools all under the same regulatory umbrella and they all have their own institutional interests. But in order to participate as a group under the NCAA umbrella, they have to agree on certain uniform standards for the product to exist at all. So you have rules of the game, you have rules of administrative organization and governance and basic eligibility requirements, who is el- can, can compete in the market, who can't compete in the market. All of these things require some level of cooperation that place some limits on the individual autonomy of the market participants, but they're deemed necessary for the product to exist at all. And the Supreme Court and Board of Regents recognized that reality and declined to apply a per se test to the television contracts at issue there, and instead utilized a full rule of reason analysis. And so now I just want to talk a little bit about these five cases to illustrate the application of antitrust law and how the various participants, those challenging NCAA compensation limits or any other restraints in their business model, and then how the NCAA and now the Power Five are uh, defending those limitations to help set the table for this Austin analysis. And those five cases are the 1984 Board of Regents decision, which we've talked a lot about, and that was really the foundational antitrust case that essentially defines the current business model because, as we've discussed before, that was the case in which a group of powerful football schools sued the NCAA challenging the NCAA's exclusive right to uh, engage in commercialized football and enter into contracts with uh, broadcast media outlets. And the big-time football schools were saying, wait a minute, you're freezing us out. And uh, they won. They won. The U.S. Supreme Court held that uh, those contracts indeed violated antitrust law and rejected all the NCAA's arguments. The second case is one from the mid-90s called Law versus NCAA, and that involved compensation limits on assistant coaches in basketball. And that arose from a cost-cutting measure that came out of a convention. I think it started in 89 and then was um, adopted as formal policy in 91 that uh, limited the compensation for a specific category of coaches, and they were called restricted earnings coaches. And that compensation limit allowed those coaches to make only $16,000 a year. And a group of coaches challenged that restriction and that compensation limit on coaching salaries under antitrust laws. And as in Board of Regents, the court applied a full rule of reason analysis 
and determined very quickly and easily that the, that restriction, that compensation restriction was anti-competitive. And then the NCAA came in and offered what are called pro-competitive justifications, saying that those limits were okay under antitrust law because there was a good reason for them. And the primary reason they offered was that it helped uh, curtail costs in big-time college sports. The uh, federal district court judge didn't think a whole lot of that pro-competitive justification, and it summarily struck down the compensation limits as a clear violation of antitrust laws and uh, found that there was no pro-competitive justification. And the NCAA appealed to the Tenth Circuit, which um, readily affirmed the decision of the district court. And law is a little bit of an outlier among these five cases. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, why that's the case when I talk about the remedies available in antitrust cases. But uh, there are two components. There's a damages component and then an injunction component. And Law was the only of these five cases where the damages issue went to a jury. And the jury found against the NCAA and in favor of the coaches and awarded damages of uh, $22 million and the measure of damages was the difference between what the coaches earned under the compensation limit, which was 16000 and what they would have earned if that restriction hadn't been in place. And under federal antitrust laws, when you get to the damages phase, if you prevail and you receive an award of damages, that damage award is tripled. It's called trouble damages. And that damages structure reflects a policy intention to really bring the hammer down on anti-competitive market practices. And the court then also issued an injunction prohibiting the NCAA from capping coaches' salaries. And that is a clear regulatory directive that is inconsistent with what the NCAA wanted to do. And we'll talk more about the importance of the injunction in these antitrust cases as we um, go through them. And then we have the other three cases that I want to use to illustrate the importance of antitrust law in college athletics. And those are the three California cases that were filed by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits applied to athletes. So this trilogy of cases really shifts the focus away from business or adult interests and into athlete interests. So Board of Regents was really a business-to-business -business case involving a commercial contract. So you had a group of powerful football schools operating as a coalition under the College Football Association structure, suing the NCAA, and uh, the Supreme Court looked at it as a business-to-business -business conflict. Then you had law, which involved adult interests. Uh, even though the compensation limits in law were virtually identical in theory as a market practice to the compensation limits the NCAA puts on athletes, the interests at stake there were different. And I think they're, you know, that's one of the things we're going to tease out. But, but it, that really didn't go to the heart of the NCAA amateurism model. These California cases, starting in 2006, went right to the heart of the fundamental principle of the NCAA business model, and that is that athletes can't be paid. 
So the first of these cases filed in 2006, uh, and the name of the case is White versus NCAA, challenged the NCAA scholarship limit, which was then set at a level that was below the full cost of attending college. And there was a lot of discussion at that time about the inequities in the NCAA scholarship limit because uh, it didn't capture the incidental costs of attending college. And the uh, full cost of attendance scholarship that the athletes were seeking was based on a federal calculation and financial aid guidelines. So it was something that was part of the overall uh, valuation system of you know college assistance to the general college population. But the NCAA set a limit below that, and it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And it had a disproportionate impact on revenue-producing athletes who came from modest or challenging financial circumstances. So there was a a sense of of justice that was involved in this quest for the full cost of attendance athletic scholarships. So the litigation proceeded, and then the NCAA settled the case, some think for a pittance. And then they basically were able to retain the then-existing scholarship limit set below the full cost of attendance. Then the second of these suits was in 2009, and it's one that a lot of people are familiar with, and that's the O'Bannon versus NCAA antitrust suit. And that suit uh, was really limited to name, image, and likeness. And the plaintiffs were a group of African-American athletes, most of them basketball players. They included some famous former athletes like Bill Russell and Oscar Robertson. And they were challenging the NCAA's compensation limits on name, image, and likeness. That case went to a trial, not a jury trial, it was a bench trial, and this was an injunction-only case. And so the what the athletes were seeking was a declaration that the NCAA's compensation limits violated antitrust law and then an injunction prohibiting them from enforcing those limits, which would have essentially opened the name, image, and likeness market open to athletes to make money. The district court judge ruled in favor of the athletes in finding that the NCAA was subject to antitrust scrutiny, that their nil compensation limits, and I use nil as a shorthand for name, image, and likeness, their nil compensation limits were anti-competitive, that the NCAA's justification for those limits, which was largely amateurism-based, had some merit, but didn't uh, weren't dispositive dis- of the outcome of the case. And then that the athletes were entitled to some modest remedies. And those remedies at the district court level included a scholarship up to the full cost of attendance, this thing that the NCAA was fighting to the death to avoid in the White case. And then also $5,000 a year trust funds earmarked as nil compensation for the revenue-producing athletes. And the NCAA then appealed the case to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Ninth Circuit, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the district court's opinion structurally. So it said, yes, the NCAA is subject to antitrust scrutiny. Yes, these nil limits are anti-competitive. Yes, the NCAA has some legitimate interest in preserving this basic distinction between amateurism and professionalism, but it struck down the trust funds. It left in place the full cost of attendance scholarships as a remedy, but it struck down the trust funds in large part 
because it deferred to the NCAA's conceptualization in the remedies phase and said, look, if we allow this, this is just going to open the doors to outright pay for play. And, and that's an important part of this entire antitrust evolution and what's playing out in Austin right now. Because in analyzing the remedies in O'Bannon, the Ninth Circuit placed a substantial limitation on those remedies. It drew a distinction between compensation or benefits that were tethered to education and those that were not. And it basically said that education-related benefits may be permissible, but any payments that were not related to education would open the door to outright pay for play and convert athletes potentially into professionals. So it deferred to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism, and that is so important in how the court is looking at this Austin case because that limitation carried forward to Austin. So after the Ninth Circuit's decision in O'Bannon, both sides appealed to the United States Supreme Court, and the athletes were saying that the limitation that the Ninth Circuit put at the remedies phase didn't make any sense because they had already dispensed with amateurism in analyzing the NCAA's contention that it was an adequate justification for its anti competitive compensation limits on nil. And that resurrecting that amateurism-based philosophy in the remedies phase really amounted to a backdoor form of limited antitrust immunity as it related to any payments that were not tethered to education. And the U.S. Supreme Court in the, I guess it was the fall of 2016, declined to take the O'Bannon case. So the case died on the courthouse steps, and this distinction between education benefits, which were okay, and non-education-related benefits, which weren't okay, was left in place. And while O'Bannon was pending in uh, 2014, a group of athletes filed another antitrust suit known as Austin versus NCAA. And that's the case that is currently pending in the U.S. Supreme Court. And in this case, instead of just going for something modest like full cost of attendance scholarships or name, image, and likeness compensation, the athletes were going for the entire web of NCAA compensation limits. And we're saying basically that the entire amateurism-based model and the way that the NCAA went about protecting it in these draconian rules that prohibit compensation above the uh, then-existing athletic scholarship, and that all of those limitations should be struck down, which would have resulted in a free and open market for the value of the athlete's services. It was the NCAA's worst nightmare. The problem with Austin, though, is that it was filed as O'Bannon was being resolved. And you had then this, shortly after Austin was filed, you had this Ninth Circuit limitation, amateurism-based limitation on compensation that excluded the very thing that the athletes were asking for in Austin, and that was a free and open market for the value of the athlete's services. So the case goes forward with O'Bannon 
on the books. And then in two, 2016, no chance that that uh, Ninth Circuit opinion opinion and abandon is going to be reviewed and perhaps overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. So the Austin case sort of operates within this substantial limitation. And as we're going to discuss when we get to really uh, breaking down the Austin case, that O'Bannon limitation has been really important in how the Austin case has been framed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think that has important implications in how the court is going to look at the case and how it may ultimately decide the case. But we'll get to that um, in in another episode. So now I want to talk a minute about the use of injunctive relief in antitrust cases. And all of these cases, all five of them, were defined by a final and permanent injunction that limited the NCAA's authority to regulate in the field that it has traditionally regulated in. And so, Going back to Board of Regents, you had a permanent injunction that prohibits the NCAA from being the exclusive vehicle through which football media contracts are, are going to be awarded. And that, that was so important because it completely shifted the balance of power in the regulatory field from the NCAA to the big-time powerful football schools. And, and that single injunction has had a transformative effect on the business of big-time college sports. And as I've said before, there's the the before Board of Regents uh, world in college sports, and then there's the after Board of Regents world. Then in law, you had um, this injunction that prohibits the NCAA from setting a cap on assistant coaches' salaries, and presumably any coaches' salaries. And so you have had this explosion in coaches' salaries that the NCAA can't do anything about. And remember, we're going to talk about this too when we uh, talk about the strategies that the NCAA has been using in in these antitrust cases. There was a lot of discussion back during that law case, and actually after Board of Regents, about Congress stepping in to offer the NCAA an antitrust immunity, not to enforce its compensation limits against athletes, but in order to reclaim the football market that it lost in Board of Regents, and then to have the authority to cap coaches' salaries because all of these external, uh, academically-oriented, reform-minded groups were saying, coaching salaries are the thing that's killing college sports and it's unsustainable and on and on and on. In fact, the 2010 Knight Commission report, Restoring the Balance, which... Uh, addressed financial catastrophe that was looming in college athletics because all of this out-of-control spending identified increasing coaching salaries as the number one threat to the integrity of big-time college sports and the integrity of the academy. They're not saying that anymore. So this current uh, drive for antitrust immunity in the context of challenges to amateurism-based compensation limits on athletes is directed exclusively to controlling the labor pool. That's it. 
there's no broader, you know, grand uh, idea that is relevant to the entire business model. They're not talking about trying to rein in commercialization and professionalization by pulling back Board of Regents or by trying to pull back coaches' salaries. They're saying that these athletes, these ungrateful athletes who provide all the value in the product are not going to be paid a penny above their existing scholarship limit unless the NCAA and only the NCAA decides to do so. And they don't want anybody coming in as an external regulator telling them that they have to do that. And that's what this is all about. So you have uh, the uh, uh, Board of Regents injunction, you have the law injunction. Then in white, you had a settlement. So there was no external requirement placed on the NCAA. And in that settlement, they didn't acknowledge any responsibility. They denied that they were obligated to provide full cost of attendance scholarships, and they preserved that existing limit. So they preserved that regulatory judgment. Then in O'Bannon, the injunction in O'Bannon prohibited the NCAA from setting a cap on the scholarship below the full cost of attendance. So even though the NCAA likes to say that they voluntarily offered these full cost of attendance scholarships as an act of magnanimity and furtherance of athlete well-being, in fact, they're under a court order, a Ninth Circuit court order, not to set the scholarship limit below the full cost of attendance And that was a result of the antitrust litigation. So the NCAA was forced to do that. And it's an external regulatory requirement that the NCAA would not have done but for that antitrust litigation. And now when we get to Austin, what happened in Austin was that the court fashioned a remedy, and it was the same district court judge both in O'Bannon and in Austin, Judge Claudia Wilkin in the Northern District of California. So she's been hearing all this evidence, and and she's broken down through this full rule, rule of reason analysis. It's very detailed, in fact, intensive. She's broken down all the NCAA's arguments on amateurism and competitive balance and all this stuff. And she's basically come to the conclusion that it's a bunch of BS. And uh, that's that in this Austin suit is one of the things that the NCAA is trying to avoid. They don't want a fact-intensive analysis of the justifications for their business model, because when you look at it the way that, that the Ninth Circuit has, that, that, that Judge Wilkin has, over a period of 10 years, uh, the NCAA's arguments are very difficult to accept. So in Austin, because they were stuck with this education, non-education related limitation from O'Bannon uh, in the Ninth Circuit, the uh, court uh, held to that distinction and said, no, we're not going to open the market for the value of the athlete services, which was the original purpose of the Austin suit. Instead, we're going to allow some limited and permissive education-related benefits because that fits within the O'Bannon framework. And the injunction that the court issued essentially took the NCAA out of the regulatory field with respect to a limited set of education-related benefits that the court specified in its injunction order and turned those benefits 
over to the Power Five conferences. And you might be saying to yourself, well, you know, why would she do that? The Power Five and the NCAA are marching in lockstep here in their strategy. And that's a very good question because it looked okay on paper and, and the athletes experts said, yeah, this is one way to sort of, you know, mitigate the anti-competitive monopolistic impact of NCAA regulation. So we're turning it over to these five conferences and they can sort of compete for education re- related benefits so long as they don't collude. But again, the Power Five conferences don't have to provide those benefits. They're purely permissive. And as of the, this date, the injunction order has been in effect since August of uh, 2020. And uh, I don't think there's any evidence of an education arms race among the Power Five. So it, as with the case with, with all of these remedies from the uh, California trilogy of cases, the practical impact to the athletes really isn't that valuable. And that's one of the prevailing myths about this antitrust threat. And it's that the NCAA is being forced to to do things that fundamentally alter its business model. But when you look at the cases that have been decided, and remember, the Ninth Circuit is viewed as probably the most athlete-friendly jurisdiction of all the circuits in the federal system, the actual framework that the court set in O'Bannon and then uh, was stuck with in Austin is very deferential to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. In fact, I argue that those two cases have already locked in a type of qualified antitrust immunity because it has prohibited, those cases have prohibited any exposure the NCAA may have to having to operate in an open market for the value of the athlete services. So in some ways, they've already kind of won. So when we look at what they're asking for, and what they're asking for here is absolute immunity from antitrust liability, they're doing it within a Ninth Circuit analytical framework that really has brought them about halfway home. So what the NCAA is really trying to do here is just completely eliminate federal courts as external regulators in the application and imposition of amateurism-based compensation limits. And, you know, uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that uh, there are a number of federal circuits, uh, there are 11 federal circuits, and only a small number of them have actually wrestled with this issue of uh, the application of antitrust laws to athlete compensation limitations imposed by the NCAA. So there are a lot of other circuits out there that could take up this issue and could come down, uh, you know, in a more athlete-friendly way than the Ninth Circuit did. So there are some potential threats out there. And within the Ninth Circuit, the way this dysfunctional uh, O'Bannon Ninth Circuit decision was structured, you have an invitation to antitrust lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers, to come in and just sort of kind of nickel and dime their way through a case, an antitrust case, which gets them to uh, some kind of a remedy that would entitle them to attorney's fees. And, you know, that that is a legitimate concern if you're the NCAA, because you, you have this, uh, you know, open door to antitrust exposure and a preset uh, structure set by O'Bannon uh, in the Ninth Circuit that kind of gets you almost all the way to uh, attorney's fees remedy within the limitations of O'Bannon, and you win, and, and you get attorney's fees under the Clayton Act, which was an amendment to the Sherman Antitrust Act. And on the backside of that kind of approach, the athletes 
aren't, as a practical matter, that much better off than they were before. Because again, you know, this Austin suit, which NCAA is playing the the chicken little uh, card with, oh, the sky's falling and this is going to change college sports forever and all that stuff. They know that's not true. And they've grossly mischaracterized the impact of the Austin uh, injunction order. But they know that that order as framed poses very little risk to the NCAA's business model. And it's important to remember that when the athletes responded to the NCAA's appeal, and remember, the NCAA, not the athletes, appealed this Austin order. They appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit upheld the order. Then, So the NCAA lost in the Ninth Circuit, technically. And then they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the NCAA has been pushing this issue through the appellate process and using it as a first strike weapon to get in front of the Supreme Court its blanket antitrust immunity arguments. And they're being dishonest about that. They're saying they're not really asking for antitrust immunity. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, when we talk about how they've played this or this quest for antitrust immunity in the Supreme Court with their quest for antitrust immunity in the Senate. But one of the things that's important to understand about how the issues are framed now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court is that the athletes aren't asking for what they asked for in their original suit or in their cross-appeal in the Ninth Circuit, and that is an open market for the value of the athlete services. That was the purpose of the original lawsuit. It was then kind of uh, cut off at the knees by this O'Bannon decision. But the athletes kept that argument alive when the NCAA appealed to the Ninth Circuit because the athletes cross-appealed and said, oh, while we're here, let's take a look at the court's uh, decision that uh, stayed within this O'Bannon education versus non-education framework. We think that's wrong, and we think that we should be able to be paid for, for things, for the value of our services that have nothing to do with education. Essentially, they were arguing for an open and free market for the value of those services. But with the appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and again, the NCAA initiated that appeal, the athletes could have cross-appealed, as they did in the Ninth Circuit, asking for this uh, fundamental change in the business model and for athletes uh, being able to compete in the open and free market for the value of their services. But they didn't do that. So as the issues were framed on the initial question in the Supreme Court of whether it should take the case, the issues were really limited, in my judgment, to whether the NCAA was going to be entitled to outright antitrust immunity or whether the status quo that exists now in uh, the Ninth Circuit with O'Bannon and then with Austin and this education versus non-education distinction and the substantial limitation on non-education related compensation, that's... uh, Uh, That's a very narrow uh, band, in my judgment, much narrower than a lot of pundits have argued. I still am reading stuff about pundits saying that the Supreme Court's going to blow the doors on amateurism. I'm not sure they're going to do that because the athletes haven't asked for them to do that explicitly. So you have these these two outcomes, and the NCAA, uh, I don't think, is that afraid of preserving the status quo because O'Bannon is really a win for them, and the limitations of O'Bannon is a win for them. But if they can knock it out of the park and get absolute antitrust immunity, they are one giant step ahead in their quest to gain the iron throne of college sports regulation. And that is what this case is really about. And in a very clever way, 
the NCAA has crafted their antitrust immunity arguments in a way that makes it appear as if they are just using the rule of reason framework and the application of a traditional rule of reason analysis to argue that amateurism is essentially a trump card in that uh, totality of the circumstances analysis. But that's not at all what they're doing. What they're really doing is pressing rewind back to Board of Regents when they were making the argument that basically they were not engaged in commercial activity. And as applied to the TV contract in uh, Board of Regents, that was a ridiculous argument. What they're saying now essentially is that this is a completely different factual context. We're dealing with uh, athlete compensation limits here that goes to the core of the amateur purpose of big-time college sports. And they're relying on some statements from that Board of Regents decision relating to the nature of the product, of the amateur product, that really had nothing to do with the actual analysis and ruling in Board of Regents. And in that sense, they are called dicta. So, Often courts will make these offhand comments that may provide context or uh, may be just something the, the judge wants to observe that really aren't central to the case, and those have no legal significance. And in discussing the nature of the product in Board of Regents, the court talked about the amateur nature of the product and that a fundamental premise underlying amateurism is that athletes don't get paid. And then the court also made some offhand comments about the need for the NCAA to have ample latitude to operate within its sphere of, of proper governance. And then there were also some statements that talked about the revered tradition of amateur athletics in America. And all of those comments really were fluff and, and weren't, weren't really important to the outcome of the case. But the NCAA has latched on to those comments to suggest and to argue that under Board of Regents, in a case where the amateur principles are being directly challenged, that the NCAA is entitled to absolute deference, to absolute uh, immunity, and that their action in defending amateurism and promoting amateurism and protecting amateurism is simply unchallengeable and not subject to antitrust scrutiny. And that is antitrust immunity. And the NCAA has disingenuously kind of covered up their request for antitrust immunity in this suggestion that this is nothing more than a routine application of the rule of reason analysis, but that's not at all what they're doing here. The briefing in uh, Austin in the U U.S. Supreme Court has finally teased that out, and I'm going to pat myself on the back here a little bit because I've been saying this since uh, November of 2019, and I've written about it. I've written about it at length in my blog, and I actually reached out to some people well-placed in the litigation to say, hey, look, you know, you need to look at what's going on here. And they were like, eh. Some of, some of those same people now are saying, wait a minute, the NCAA is asking for antitrust immunity. That's, that's, this, is, this is just an outright power play for absolute antitrust immunity. And that's how the issue is now framed in the U.S. Supreme Court. And so all of this briefing, including the friend of the court briefs, and now I, I mentioned this in a prior episode, the United States of America has intervened in the 
the suit, in the appeal, to argue that essentially that the NCAA shouldn't be granted antitrust immunity and that they should be subject to a full rule of reason antitrust analysis and that that status quo in the Ninth Circuit should be preserved. But they're not saying, none of these people are saying, none of these amici uh, are are saying that the athletes should be paid for the full value of their services and we should just eliminate the amateurism uh, model and go to an open and free market. They're saying that the NCAA is going to have to prove its justification for the compensation limit through the full rule of reason analysis. And that as a remedy, just kind of preserving this dysfunctional status quo that's the result of what I think is a terrible decision in O'Bannon 2, doesn't really help advance the interests of the athletes. It simply eliminates this outright antitrust immunity. And if if that is the frame that the Supreme Court analyzes this case through, then the NCAA is kind of in a win-win proposition because the worst case scenario for them is the status quo in the Ninth Circuit, which they're not too unhappy about. So, you know, it's possible that when the Supreme Court's looking at this, they may say, wait a minute, this O'Bannon 2 decision, this O'Bannon Ninth Circuit decision is a real problem here. What are we going to do with that? And I guess they could, uh, without having been asked to do so, come in and kind of blow the doors on amateurism. I think given the composition of this court, that's not going to happen. And I wrote about that explicitly when I talked about the impact of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and her replacement with uh, Amy Coney Barrett. And I'll I'll link to that article in in the show notes. I won't go go through all that now, but um, I think I'll address that in one of these episodes leading up to the oral argument on on March 31st. But given the composition of the court right now, I just don't see this court blowing the doors on amateurism. And as the issues have been framed right now by the parties, that the choice is between preserving the status quo in the Ninth Circuit and, and subjecting the NCAA to the full rule of reason analysis or granting the NCAA antitrust immunity. And I think that, that there's some kind of invisible momentum towards the immunity option. And I said this early on, and I honestly, despite the intervention of the United States in the appeal, which is significant, you know, and they're arguing for uh, ostensibly for the position that the athletes are arguing for. Despite that intervention, I still think there's a very, very good chance that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to uh, adopt antitrust immunity and the NCAA's arguments for antitrust immunity. And that would make this decision one of the most important decisions in the history of big-time college sports litigation. And and that's a good segue in, into the next thing I want to talk about, uh, and then we're going to close this episode out. One of the things that has been lying beneath all of the antitrust cases initiated by athletes are some normative principles that are never spoken, but I think have had a substantial impact on this very slow movement in the antitrust cases in terms of the practical uh, outcome for athletes. And, and you know, these cases really haven't resulted in meaningful changes to the status quo. And I said this in a couple of episodes before, and I want to reemphasize this. The, these antitrust cases have had benefit for the athletes that really have nothing to do with the actual legal uh, reasoning of those cases or the legal remedy that 
those cases offered. The most important impact of these antitrust cases has been the fear of what a judge might do. And when you go back and you do a timeline in O'Bannon and Austin, but mostly O'Bannon, because that was the first case, that was the case everybody was talking about, that was that got all kinds of media attention. And there was a genuine belief that that was going to be the case that completely changed the business model, that blew the doors on amateurism, and that gave athletes the base basic economic freedoms and rights that every other American has and that antitrust laws were designed to protect. But that didn't happen. (laughs) But during the pendency of the suit between 2009 and 2015, when when the uh, Ninth Circuit ruled, or actually I'll just say in 2014, when the district court ruled, the uh, power players in big-time college sports, particularly the Power Five, were so afraid of what Judge Wilkin might do that they tried to get ahead of the game, and they were proactive here, and they were really operating independent of the NCAA because the NCAA never uh, responds intelligently to uh, external threats. It just brings in its arrogance and, and its condescension, and it's my way or the highway way of thinking about its compensation limits. The Power Five were trying to get ahead of the game, and that, remember, is when they went to the NCAA and demanded under threat of secession that they be uh, put into this entirely separate classification, which is now known as autonomy, and it applies only to the Power Five, and it gives them the right to regulate in certain specified areas completely outside of the NCAA legislation process. And what they wanted to do was offer a series of of benefits and protections to the athletes that had been part of the discussion for decades. So these weren't new things. They were just things that the Power Five was saying, we're willing to do now. And they were doing that to try to gain some leverage in this uncertainty during O'Bannon. And to try to make it clear that, you know, they really wanted to do the right thing and they were going to take some aggressive action to be in a position to do that. So there were, you know, a handful of uh, things like they were going to commit to the full cost of attendance scholarship. They were were going to commit to going with a full uh, four-year athletic scholarship rather than a one-year renewable scholarship, which had gotten a lot of criticism. They were going to go um, with some time balance restrictions that would have given athletes, at least in theory, a little more time to actually be the students that the system claims that they they are, and they're not. They're, they're employees. So, you know, you had, had a series of things like this. Nothing huge, nothing game-changing, but enough to make the Power Five look like they cared. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> those benefits were just enough to kind of place them in a position where they had an insurmountable advantage in the recruiting game relative to the next classification of football schools, which is the group of five, which is trying their best to try to be part of the power five or compete with the power five. And they're just spending money and spending money and losing ground. And what the power five did was actually brilliant, both from a public relations standpoint, but also from a competitive advantage standpoint, because they kind of elevated their benefits packages, and uh, they made themselves untouchable in the talent acquisition market, and that's that's recruiting. But the, the interesting thing about that is that it was the fear of the litigation and the uncertainty that drove that. And when you look at what the athletes actually got out of O'Bannon, which ultimately was nothing more than a court order that prohibited the Power Five 
from setting the scholarship cap below the full cost of attendance. What the athletes actually got through this autonomy legislation was better than what the court granted. So they wound up better off because of the uncertainty of what the court might do than if the NCAA and the Power Five had just held off and said, well, let's see what's going to happen. The only thing they would have been required to do as a practical matter would be to offer uh, full cost of attendance scholarships. But that the way the Ninth Circuit framed that, that wasn't mandatory. It was permissive. They just couldn't set a cap below the full cost of attendance. So, you know, when people talk about the value of the antitrust cases, sometimes they lose sight of what has happened that, that's, that's really outside of the lawsuit itself, but has forced some change because of the fear of what might happen. And, you know, I, I, I guess I want to uh, make this point, too. You know, the, the NCAA's entire business model changed because of antitrust laws. The Power Five, the, the former iteration of Power Five, this college football association from the 1970s that ultimately sued the NCAA and Board of Regents, they availed themselves of free competition laws and fair competition laws and economic opportunity laws to achieve complete financial freedom from the NCAA. And it completely changed the business of big-time college sports. Those same interests now want to stand in front of those antitrust laws and say that athletes cannot pass through. And their attempt to eliminate access to those basic American rights has absolutely nothing to do with preserving the revered tradition of amateurism or giving the NCAA ample latitude to regulate within uh, college sports. It is about preserving their power and their money. And they don't want anybody disrupting the status quo Everybody's worked out their interests just the way they want them in the post-Board of Regents world. Everybody's getting what they need. It's, a, in some ways, a carefully calibrated status quo because of this tension that's existed between the Power Five and the NCAA that we've, we've talked a lot about. But it is nevertheless a status quo where a lot of people are happy, a lot of people are getting rich, and they don't want anything or anyone coming in to disrupt that status quo. That's, that's it. That's what it's all about. So let's see, I'm, I'm pushing an hour here. So I think what I'm going to do is defer to the next episode, a discussion of these underlying values-based but invisible influences that have really shaped the approach that federal courts have taken in these antitrust suits filed by athletes and and comparing those to you know how the courts treated the business interests and board of regents and then the adult interests in law and that's an important thing to understand because i really think that's going to be influential in how the supreme court ultimately rules in this austin case so um so with that i guess i'll just go ahead and close this thing out and i will get busy on that next episode and try to get it out as quickly as possible so thanks again for joining i hope you found this uh, interesting i i get a little fired up about this stuff and i think it's worth getting fired up up about because it really taps into issues that are much bigger than uh whether or not the ncaa gets antitrust immunity what we're talking about some core American values and and the way that 
big, powerful systems treat people who have no power in the system but have enormous benefit to the people who are in power. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's just part of the American story. It's playing out in real time right now. And I think we need to be attentive to how that fits into the broader narratives in American culture. So with that, uh, we'll sign it off and I will be back at you as soon as I can. Thanks for joining.